Good to see you this morning. Go ahead and grab a Bible. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We have been, over the last several weeks, just kind of walking through 1 Thessalonians verse by verse. And uh, we're doing this in a series that we're calling Endgame, Facing the Future Without Fear. Now church, um, look up here just for a second. All right, let me just kind of lay this on you right now. There's a lot of death in your future. There's a lot of death in your future. Now that I've got everybody's attention, um, let me just say this. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. I'm not trying to be more morbid Mike uh, today um, on, this, on this Mother's Day. But it's just the truth. And we all have to face it. We all have to, to deal with it. The Bible says that death is our greatest and last enemy. It is our biggest foe. There's no question about it. So the question then becomes, how do we face death without fear? I think that's the question. And that's what we want to try to answer today. I think if there's one passage that you and I need related to this question, it's this passage that we're going to be looking at today. Now, we read it last week, but I want to come back to it again. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. It's an amazing passage of scripture, and I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand as we read the word of God this morning. So Paul writes this, he says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by, the, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so the grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It stands forever. You may be seated. All right, so this passage is really about hope. And uh, there's a hymn, there's an old hymn that goes strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And so what we see is that, is that hope for tomorrow gives us strength for today. So we know that hope has a powerful impact on us. And that's what this passage is really about. It's, it's about it's about the hope that we have through the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so the Thessalonian Christians were, were asking some questions of the Apostle Paul about their family members and friends who had died. And they just wanted to know, you know, our family members and friends who were Christians, who were believers, what happens to them after they die? Where do they go? And, and, and kind of how does all this Unfold, And so they were asking those questions because many of them were still grieving the loss of their loved ones. And so they asked, they reach out for the Apostle Paul to give them some answers. And that's what Paul does. And Paul responds to those questions to give them hope to face the future without fear. And I think there's four insights about hope that we have related in this passage. And I'm just going to just kind of walk these, 
walk you through these this morning. I think what we first of all see in this passage, the first one is this, we see our need for hope. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but we see our need for hope. Secondly, we see the basis of our hope or the foundation, the ground of our hope. And then third, we see the uniqueness of our hope. Certainly, this is a very unique passage. And then lastly, we're going to talk just just briefly about what it means to grow in hope, how we can grow in in hope. So let's let's look at the first one, our need for hope. Look with me at verse look with me at verse 13. Notice notice what he says, and we're just going to kind of walk through this passage. So so let's look at it. But he says We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice there. He's using the word asleep as a metaphor. It's a metaphor for death. So he's not trying to communicate to us that when we die, we go into this soul sleep, okay? When we die, our body is at rest. It's like our body is sleeping. But what we know from scripture is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we're not going into soul sleep. He's just using this metaphorically. But then he goes on to say that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he's using a double negative here. And he's basically saying, don't grieve with no hope. That's what he's saying. Don't grieve with no hope. Now, let's just camp on that for a little bit. He's not saying that as believers, we're not going to grieve. We are going to grieve because we know that life is filled with loss. We know that life is hard, that that life is filled with sorrow and pain. So we are going to grieve. What the apostle Paul is saying is, I I want you to have hopeful grief. I want your grief to be filled with hope. Now, why is he saying that? I think part of it is because he knows how important and how essential hope is. He knows that it's, he he knows that our need as Christians, as believers, is we need large doses of hope in our life if we're going to live the kind of life that God wants us to live. So he says, I want your, I want you to have hopeful grief. See, he understands that we're going to face our own death and we're going to face the death of those that we love that are very near and dear to us. And he doesn't want us to be overwhelmed with grief because I'm telling you, grief will do that to you. And the only way to keep that from happening is you got to fill it with hope. And that's what he gives to us here. He knows that death is our greatest enemy. He knows that death is hard. Death is a struggle. And and there's no way we can beat it on our own. He knows it's hard. That's why, like Pastor Adam mentioned a little bit earlier, Mother's Day is a difficult day for a lot of us. Why? Because we've lost our mom. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a hard day. So what he's saying here is this. He says, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Now, um, just for me as a pastor, I, I have over 25 years of ministry. I have literally done hundreds of funerals. I have done funerals for, for infants. I've done, I've done funerals for children, for teenagers, for 20-somethings, I've done the whole gamut. And the thing that I can't figure out is how in the world can you lose a child, lose a spouse, lose a parent, lose a loved one without the hope of Christ? Like, I have not figured that out. 
how people experience death and experience loss and experience grief without, without any hope. I, I, don't, I don't have any idea. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't think the Apostle Paul is saying, that most people live without hope. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is this. I think he's saying that when you come to understand the, the reality of Christian hope, specifically related to death, and, what, and life after death. When you come to understand what that is, all other hope pales in comparison. It's almost like when you compare the two, you, you compare Christian hope with hope that you know, people find outside of the Christian faith related to death. It's almost like that's not even hope at all when you compare the two. And I think that's what, what he's alluding to. It's not that people don't have hope. It's just that they they you know, they, they find something else to kind of put their hope in and kind of hang their hope on. Does that make sense? Let, let, me, let me just give you two ways. These are two common ways I think people find hope today in the face of death outside of Christ. I think the first way, and this is, this is growing in popularity, but just simply the belief in reincarnation. A lot of people believe in reincarnation. And reincarnation is the belief that that when you die, your soul is reborn into another body or to another existence. And, and, and often the person is carrying little or no remembrance of their past life. So, so reincarnation is this constant dying and coming back to the earth in a different form, dying and coming back to the, and it's just over and over, it's kind of it's the rat race. And so you see this this, th this thought of reincarnation is the central tenet of Buddhism, Hinduism, and even, um, you know, Sikhs today believe in, in reincarnation. Now, the basis of this is this, the thought process behind it is this, that if you can live a good life here and now, then you're going to elevate your status for your next life. And if you, leave a, you, you lead a bad life now, you're going you're gonna to really diminish your status in the next life. Now, what is that? That's just work salvation. That's all that is. That's just earning your own, earning your own way. And so, you know, if you can achieve nirvana, if you can achieve uh, enlightenment, that is ideal uh, for those who believe in reincarnation. The problem is there's not a clear path for that. So you get, you're, left, you're left guessing. And so a lot of people find hope in reincarnation. And... Uh, you know, it's just kind of an issue. I, I heard about a guy that was, who believed in reincarnation and he was struggling getting his medical insurance company to pay his bills and uh, his medical bills. And so he called them up one time and said, I, I just want to know why my insurance company is not paying this bill. And they said, well, because you believe in reincarnation. And they said, well, he said, well, what does that have to do with anything? And they said, well, you have a pre-existing condition. So... Uh, <laughs> Now, what does the Bible say about reincarnation? I could, I could have shared hundreds of verses with you on this. Let me just quickly give you two verses about reincarnation. Psalm 78, 39. Notice what the psalmist says. He remembered that they were but flesh. So God remembered that we are just flesh. And then he uses a metaphor to describe our existence on the earth. A wind that passes and comes not again. So what he's talking about here is our life is just like a temporary breeze. We're not even here that long. We're here one minute and we're gone the next. And he says never to return again. Hebrews 9.27 is more specific and more to the point. 
the writer of Hebrews says this, as just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So that means we, got, we're, we have one shot at it, and, uh, and then we face judgment. And so, and so a lot of people today believe in, in reincarnation. Let, let me tell you a second way that people find hope today. This one definitely is growing more and more popular uh, among people today. And it's, and it's really this, this belief that death is not that big of a deal at all. And so our, our, our culture is growing more and more um, secular by the day. It is secular humanism is really the uh, the spirit of the age, if you will. It is what dominates political thought and, and uh, intellectual thought today among the elites. It is the spirit of the age. It's the dominant worldview uh, in the United States today. And secular humanism basically says that death's not that big of a deal. That death is totally natural. That death is basically when they put your body back in the, gra- in the, in the ground and then your body fertilizes the flowers and the grass and becomes food for the animals. And so basically the thought is death is the end. It is the end. So when your body is decomposing, your spirit, uh, your soul basically um, just evaporates. And, and according to secularists that basically that buy into this, that's a totally natural process. And so the thought is, if you can accept and embrace how natural that is, then what that does is it takes fear out of you. Because you just say, hey, we see this all around us every single day. So there's no reason to be afraid. It's like the, you know, the Greek philosopher Epicurus. Um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, this stuff just goes around and around, you know, through the years. But he, he said this, he says, why fear death when we never can perceive it? And so what he's saying is he's echoing secularists, echo Epicurus, because they basically say it's the end, it's over. And you just evaporate into nothing. You lose all consciousness. Now, church, can I just ask a question? Does that give you a lot of hope? You get a lot of comfort from knowing that, that, that basically death is the end? And you never see your loved ones again? Does that give you a lot of encouragement? Yeah, me neither. I think intuitively we know this is not right. I think there's something within us that screams out, even if you're not a Christian. I think you know deep down this is not right. I think deep down we know we're not a tree, we're not a grass, we're not, you know, we're not grass, we're not animals. I think the deepest desire of our heart is to know that our lives are not inconsequential that our lives are significant. And what do we long for more than anything else? Love relationships. And so that's what we cry out for, even if you're not a Christian. And I think we need to pay attention to that because I think it's a marker for eternity. I really do. Peter Kreft is an author and he tells the story of a neighbor of his this is a lady that had a seven-year-old son, and, and she, she has a seven-year-old son, and, and, um, and she really embraced secular humanism. And, uh, and that her seven-year-old son lost a cousin who was really young and just tragically. And uh, the seven-year-old boy went up to his mom and said, where's my cousin? I want to see my cousin. And, uh, and so she talked to her son and said, said, son, you know, death is really natural. Uh, it's, it's part of the normal living process. And so, you know, your cousin has been 
put into the ground and he's going to fertilize the animals and, and, or fertilize the flowers and the grass and he's going to feed the animals. And, you know, next spring when we see all those beautiful flowers, we see that green grass, we'll think of your cousin because that's where your, your cousin will be. And the little boy looked at his mom and said, I don't want him to be fertilizer. I just want him here right now. Now that seven-year-old little boy, you know, he, he's already dialed into it. And uh, he knows that this world is not all that there is, right? And uh, he knows deep down that, that we long for eternity and we long for significance. We know, church, death is not natural. What we know is, is death is an intruder. Death is a destroyer. Death is not welcome. That's the universal condition about death. That's the universal view about death, that death is not supposed to be. And we saw this in John's gospel, chapter 12, when Jesus arrives on the scene after Lazarus had died. And, and, so, and so what was Jesus' reaction? It's the only time in scripture where Jesus weeps because he looks around the village that he's in, Lazarus has passed away and, and people are just broken over his loss especially his, his sisters, Mary and Martha. And, and Jesus looks around and Jesus weeps at what death is doing to them. And he looks into the tomb. He's getting ready, he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. And, and, the, and, the, and John records that he, something groaned within him with anger. And he's not mad at Mary and Martha. And he's not mad at the whole community for how they're responding to the death of Lazarus. He's mad at death. And he is, he is angry at death and he is going to do something about it because he knows that death is an intrusion and he does something about it more than just raising Lazarus from the dead. He deals with it once and for all. And so I think it's, it's not natural. And so when somebody who is secular says, yeah, death's just, just go with the flow, man. It's just totally natural. Just, just go with it. Uh, you know how we know that they're wrong? We know that they're wrong because when you think about what, what is it that brings you the greatest joy in your life? What is it? Is it money? Is it a nice house? Is it a nice car? Is it achieving things at work and at school? Is, does that bring you, you know what brings you the greatest joy in your life? The people that you love the most. And I think that's a clue about what life is all about, that what the Bible testifies to is this, that life is all about relationships, our relationship with God and one another, because those two things bring us more joy than anything else. And so I think it's a clue to the meaning of the universe. Why in the world would you and I value something so strongly and so universally only to have it taken away at death forever? That doesn't make sense. And so... Our relationships are huge. And what we do with them echoes throughout all of eternity. That's the witness of Scripture. So that is our need for hope. We need to know that we have hope. All right, but let's take it a step further. What's the basis? What's the foundation? Uh, what's the ground of our hope? Look with me at verse 14. And so Paul says, I don't want you to grieve as uninformed brothers and sisters. I want you to have hopeful grief. And then he starts to unpack it. Verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him 
those who have fallen asleep. Now, what he's doing in, in verse 14 is he brings us right back to the gospel. He's talking about Jesus died and Jesus rose again. And one day at his second coming, he's going to bring with him those believers who've died before us. When he comes, that's who's coming with him. Now, I love this because this is not, he, he's not basing our hope on positive thinking. He's not trying to, you know, lay out for us wishful optimism. He is grounding it in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, where, that's the basis of our hope. And that's the gospel. And what he's saying is this, Jesus defeated our greatest enemy. That's what he's saying in verse 14. How do we know that? Because Jesus is alive. And those who believe in Jesus who've died before us, they're alive too because they're coming back with them. He has defeated our greatest enemy. Now, how did he do that? Well, again, verse 14, he died and rose for us. He did it for us. You see, the reality of the gospel is this, that death entered the world because of sin. That that death is a part of our existence in this fallen, sin-cursed world because of sin. And so we see this in Romans 6.23 where Paul writes, For the wages of sin, the payment, the payment of sin is death. The consequences of, of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you go back to Genesis. God told Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the trees in the garden, just not one. And he said, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And sin came into the world as a result of their choice. And death came into the world as a result of that choice. And so, and so death is really a consequence of sin. So you could say it like this. Death is not just our greatest enemy. Death is the penalty for sin. And so what Jesus does on the cross is he pays our penalty for us. He substitutes for us. He takes our place. And that's why his death is so huge. Now, how do we know that that payment was adequate, that that payment was received in full? Well, we know because Jesus rose. He's saying in verse 14, Jesus died, Jesus rose. I heard one theologian say it like this, the resurrection is the receipt that the payment was made in full and the Father accepted it. And so Jesus took the wrath and he died, he died for us. Now, Donald Barnhouse was a longtime pastor in Philadelphia and he, he uh, lost his wife and the mother of his two daughters and um, he was driving them back home after after the funeral and so he was trying to just help his daughters process things and so they were driving driving home and um, he pulled up next to this huge truck it was just a beautiful sunny day and he pulled up next to this truck and a shadow just kind of loomed right over where they were and uh, Donald Barnhouse uh, said to his daughters he said uh, he said you guys see that shadow and they his girl said yes and and uh he said to them, he said, now, would you rather be hit by a, a truck or would you rather be hit by a shadow? And one of his daughters said, well, obviously, I'd, I'd rather be hit by the shadow and not the truck. And so what Barnhouse said to his girls is this. He said, he said, Jesus let himself be hit by the truck 
so we would only be hit by the shadow. And what death is, is the shadow. And what Jesus does is he, on resurrection day, blows a hole right in the back of death. And he overcomes it and he defeats it and destroys it forever. Where death now is just a pass through to the life that we've always wanted. Can I get an amen to that? Absolutely. So, so that is the basis of our hope. That is, that is the foundation. Someone else pays our penalty and that someone was Jesus. And he paid it in full. And we get, we get new life by faith through grace. Now, all right, let's dig into this a little bit more. You guys are tracking with me. You've had that donut and that second cup of coffee. That's is really good. So, so let's, let's look at the uniqueness of our Christian hope, okay? Now, let me just say this. You've heard me say this time and time again. I'm going to come back to it. When somebody tells you that all religions are the same, they're just the same way. You see that little coexist bumper sticker where all the faiths, all religions are on an equal playing field, you know, and it, it communicates to us all religions are the same. Church, listen to me. Don't you believe it? Don't you believe it? Because I'm telling you, no other faith, no other religion teaches you what the Apostle Paul is about to unload on us here in just a minute, okay? So I want you to get that. Church, listen to me. Let me bottom line it for you. We're not going to be reincarnated, okay? And, not, and we're not going to fertilize, you know, the grass and the flowers and all of that. We're, we're, we're not going to do that. Um, we're not going to, in other words, we're not going to fade into nothingness never to be seen again. Let me say it that way. Let me give you three unique features of our Christian hope after death. Number one, we're going to be united with Jesus. We're going to be united with Jesus. Let me show it to you in verse let me show you this in verse 15. He says this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. We got this from the master. We're passing on to you what we got from Jesus. And this is what he says, That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. All right, now let me just explain that for a minute. You notice that phrase, coming of the Lord. That, that Greek word for coming is parousia. Okay, and, and that word, it, it, it means coming, certainly, but more specifically, it means appearing. It means the personal presence. So, so he's talking about the personal presence of the Lord, the, the, the appearing of God. So Jesus is already with us through the, through the Holy Spirit, but we're going to see his personal appearing. And so that Greek word parousia really has a connection to kings and emperors making a grand entrance. And that's the picture that we get. So what he's really saying here is this, that at the second coming is not, the second coming of Jesus is not just the appearing of the Lord. Get this church, it is the getting of the Lord. It is the, it is the getting of the Lord that we, we will get Jesus' personal presence. We will see him face to face and we will be united with him. Praise be to God. That's what's coming at the second coming. Jesus is coming. We get his personal appearance and presence. Now, I want you to think about this being united with Jesus, okay? Because this is at the heart of, heart of the gospel as well. You know, uh, it's often said that, you know, people that think you're great really don't know you. <laughs> you ever heard that? You know, people that think we're great, they really, they really don't know us. Because if they really got to know us, they probably wouldn't think we were that great. And so there is one who knows you perfectly and completely 
who knows you inside and out, who knows every thought you think, every weakness that you struggle with, every sin that you've ever committed, there is one who knows all of that and who loves you perfectly and completely. And you know who he is? He's Jesus. And by grace through faith, he's coming for you one day. He's coming for you one day. And what the gospel says is that by, by his amazing mercy and grace, we will, be, we will be united with him. We will be united with him at that second coming. And it will no longer be by faith, church. We will see him with our eyes. We will behold his glory. It will be manifested right in front of us. And the God who knows you inside and out, the God who gave his son to die for you, is coming back for you one day. It's just absolutely amazing. Revelation even talks about how we'll be given a new name. And I've mentioned this in the past. We'll be given a new name. And that name will just be between us individually and the Lord. So it's his way of expressing his love just especially for you. It's just between you and him. That's how much he loves you. That's how unique and treasured you are in his, in his sight. And so that's the, that's the first thing. When you think about the unique feature of the Christian hope after death, we're going to be united with Jesus. But secondly, we're going to be reunited with those that we love who've died in Christ. We're going to be reunited with those that we love who have who have died in Christ. In other words, the future that you have is a future of love. It's a, it's a relational future. It is a, re, it is a future filled, you know, filled with relationships because we're going to be reunited. Let me, let me just show you this in verse 14. Go back to verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So, so those loved ones that have died before us at Jesus' second coming are going to be coming with him. They're going to be right behind him. And, and, and we're going to be caught up together in the clouds with the Lord. Do you see that in verse 17? So we're going to be caught up with the Lord in the clouds. Now, uh, this is amazing because I, I want to just really try to bring clarity to this. Um, we're going to recognize each other, church. I don't know of another way to say that. Um, I think a lot of times we think about death and we think we're going to be like ghosts and this ethereal existence, you know, and, uh, or maybe we're going to be like angels with wings and strumming harps. That is not going to be it. You're going to be you glorified with a glorified body. You're going to be the real you. You're going to be the transformed you. In other words, Philippians 1.6 says it like this. He that began a good work in you will carry it to completion. On that day, you'll be completed. The character of Christ will be manifested in you. And so we'll recognize, we will recognize each other. And we'll be the real us. And uh, it's it's an incredible thing. And so we're going to be reunited. We're going to be together with the Lord forever. And that's why he says you need to encourage one another with these words because that's the future uh, that we have. And so pretty amazing when you think about it. All right, so here's the third unique feature. Um, we're going to be united with Jesus. We're going to be reunited with family members and, and, and friends in the Lord. And then third, we're going to get the life that we've always wanted. We're going to get the life that we've always wanted. Let me show you this in verse 16. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, uh, with the sound of the trumpet. Everybody's going to hear it, church. Everybody's going to see it. Um, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I'll explain that in just a minute. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, um, I will tell you that um, this passage is often misunderstood. And the reason why it's misunderstood, which I can, I can uh, totally understand, be- because if you just look at it, he doesn't really tell us what happens next. He's just saying at the second coming, Jesus, there's this loud command, the voice of the archangel. Jesus comes and he brings with him all of those who've died in him. And then we're caught up in the Lord in the air. And then he just kind of stops. So we're just kind of hanging, literally, uh, right? We're just kind of hanging. And so he doesn't tell us what happens. And so what, what, what a lot of us do with this is we automatically assume we're all going up into heaven. And that's not what's happening here. You see, that, that word meet is an is a, is a interesting term. It's, a, it, it's kind of a military term. It's, it's conveying to us that there's, it's, this is like a military parade. And what's going to happen is we're going to meet the Lord in the air and we're joining the parade as he comes down. So, so here's, here's kind of the imagery. Imagine you're part of a city or you're part of a you know, small nation and there's an enemy army approaching. And the warrior king, the battle king, summons his troops and they go meet, they go meet and fight that battle. And everybody stays back in the city to wait, to wait to hear, hey, how, how did this thing turn out? And you look in the distance and you see your king coming and they're hooting and hollering and celebrating and so excited. And you realize, you realize you won. You realize our, our king won. And our army won. And so what you're going to do is you see them approaching the city. You're going to run out to the victors. And you're going to join the parade and celebrate with them as they're coming coming back into the city. That's exactly what I think is happening here. I think we're not taken up into heaven. I think we're coming with the Lord to the earth where he sets up his kingdom on the earth. Does that make sense? It's kind of like, you remember uh, a thousand years ago when the Colts won the Super Bowl? Do you guys remember that? And so when they won the Super Bowl, the Colts did a victory parade through the city and they went right up into the RCA Dome. And Luann and I were there. It was about 22 degrees below zero. And, and, uh, and uh, everybody just kind of followed the Colts players, you know, into the stadium. And uh, it was really cool. It was, like a, it was just like this, a victory parade. And I think that is exactly what Jesus is going to do. He is going to take a victory lap and he's going to land right here. Um, and then that's where we begin to see the new heaven and the new earth. Now, let me answer one other question because there's this, there's this interesting phrase uh, that you see in the dead in Christ will rise. You see that? So what's going to happen as the dead in Christ come with him, their bodies will be resurrected from the graves. You see that? Even if you're cremated, God will pull it together, I promise, all right? But, but those bodies will be res- resurrected and then those bodies will be transformed. And so that's what he's talking about. Really, the emphasis in the passage is on the resurrection of your physical body. So, so what, that, 
what that means is this. Your, your resurrection, you know, your glorified body is a physical body. It's just like, part of it is just like seeing Jesus after his resurrection. You'll see the holes in it. They, they can touch him. He eats breakfast with the disciples and they can see the holes in his hands and feet. And so that is it's huge and it's absolutely theological because what that means is our future is not an immaterial future. Our future is not a spiritual future. I mean, it is a spiritual future, but there's a physical future as well. You're not going to be a ghost-like figure. You're, 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 you're going to be in the kingdom of God. You're going to run and jump and play football and hug and dance and sing. And you're going to do all of these things physically. And that is the real defeat of death. If we're just ghosts for all of eternity, then death wins. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to raise those bodies out and then give us glorified new ones. And so really the bottom line is this, that, that our hope, what is unique to the Christian hope, is we get the life we've always wanted. We get the family we've always wanted. We get, we get the body that we've always wanted, right? You get... You get the life you've always wanted. And Jesus, we see this in Revelation, says, I'm making all things new. I am renovating this place. And it is going to be good. And that's why the work of God making us like his son Jesus is so huge. Because that's a part of the future that God has for us. That we learn to love here on earth, which is preparing us for community life in heaven, a community of love. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what's going to do, what's going to happen. Now, that's the basic of this passage. Let me just show you verse 18, and this is, this is kind of what I'll end with today. How do, we, how do we grow in this hope? How do we strengthen our hope in this? He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, can I, can, I, can I just tell you two ways that you can be encouraged? Number one, you need to be together. You need to be together. I, I don't want you to feel guilty about not coming to church. I want you to see this is your eternal family. And part of your encouragement and hope is just simply fellowshipping and being together. And so I want you to come out of love, not out of guilt. And so in order for your hope to be strengthened, you need to be with other Christians. You need other Christians in your life. Secondly, he says, encourage one another with these words. In other words, you need to know these words. You need to know the word of God. You need to know the word of God. You need to know what the scripture says about life after death and about the glorious new heaven and new earth that God has for us. You need to understand what, what he is what he's literally saying because what that's going to do is strengthen you as you navigate your death and the death of family members and friends that's at the heart of this so let me ask you are you afraid of death are you afraid do you have assurance that you know man when Jesus comes I'm going to be there I'm going to be in that parade with him. Well, church, I can just tell you this. The good news of the gospel is you can be sure today. You can be sure today. If you'll admit that you need a savior, if you believe that Jesus died as your substitute, and then commit your life 
which is really just repentance, just turning away from what you know is wrong and turning to what you know is God honoring. Commit your life to him. The Bible says you'll be saved by grace through faith, through your, your belief in Jesus. Does that make sense? And that is the best way. That is the only way to prepare for what we know is coming in the future. That's how you face the future without fear. You face it with the presence of Jesus living inside of you as you eagerly hope and anticipate his second coming. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word says that that eyes haven't seen and ears haven't even heard, that no mind can even imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Lord God, we we were blown away at the rainbow you blessed us with this week. And that's just a rainbow. We can't even begin to imagine what you're gonna do in making a new heaven and a new earth and a glorified body. We can't even begin to perceive that, but God, we, we know you've given us glimpses, you've given us peaks into the future. We know that our relationships matter, our choices matter, here and now matters. And thank you that you gave your son to secure our future. God, thank you that we're more than just for. Thank you that we're not trapped in a sin-cursed world over and over and over again. Thank you that you're going to right every wrong. You're going to wipe away every tear. Thank you for salvation, for light and truth and love. And so, God, I pray we would not be uninformed but we would be filled with hope and so we pray this in the precious name of your son Jesus Christ and all of God's people said amen amen let's stand together as we sing living hope